Bibles, please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Our, our Lord Jesus was without sin. And yet he didn't view the earth as a system any differently than Solomon did. One, the wisest man that ever lived before Jesus. The other, the very personification of the wisdom of God. And both saw the world as completely unable to ever provide us with meaning. In other words, seeing the world that way as meaningless is not exclusive to those who are sinners. Jesus saw the world that way too. Because that's the way the world is. However... It's still a world made by God who once called everything in it good. The things God made still remain in spite of the curse. So it isn't as though Solomon's wisdom or Jesus' insight mean that there's nothing to enjoy here. That we're confined to just absolute constant misery. Remember, it's God himself who is good, who has subjected the world to futility, but he has done so, Paul tells us in Romans 8, in hope. So it's Good to enjoy the world that God has made. The emptiness comes, the meaninglessness continues when we try to squeeze meaning out of that enjoyment. When we try to find salvation in the world or within ourselves. The simpler our lives, the less vexation because even what is here to enjoy is only reminding us that we were made to enjoy so much more. Right, The fact that nothing yields satisfaction means we are made for enjoyment and nothing can deliver that which lasts. We were made in paradise, but we lost it. We weren't made to settle for things. We were made to feast. And the fleetingness of even what we enjoy reminds us of that every single day. But God encourages us to find enjoyment in the present, in his daily gifts of food, drink, and toil. But in doing so, beckons us to find meaning completely apart from such things or anything we can gain from them. So let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father, I thank you tonight for your word, its perfection, Father, its beauty. It's truth, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to understand it tonight. As the text of Ecclesiastes is often so heavy and difficult to work through, God, be with me. Watch over my mind and my mouth, Father, for your namesake, for your glory and for your people, for your Son, Jesus Christ, and our need for him, Father. Watch over everyone who hears. We ask this in his name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he writes... I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So Ecclesiastes, remember this, is the result of Solomon talking to himself over the years. Right? Uh, The first thing he tells himself was that maybe then, now that he's discovered life is meaningless, maybe the escape from underneath the sun, maybe meaning, can be found in pleasure. And with divine wisdom, remember, Solomon begins to test pleasure to see if it will yield. The word for test here is the same word used to describe what the Queen of Sheba did, when she came to examine everything that Solomon had, his kingdom. She wanted to evaluate it 
discern it for herself, to see if it was how she had heard. That's what Solomon is doing with pleasure in chapter 2. In other words, this is very different. We need to understand this. This is very different what Solomon is doing here with pleasure than what the prodigal son did, for example. And he wants us to know that. That's verse 3, verse 9. Solomon was not in a drunken, debaucherous, ignorant stupor the whole time he was testing pleasure. That's not how he tested it. In fact, he tested it. He didn't just enjoy it. And we have no reason not to take the man at his word. He genuinely set out to examine pleasure and kept wisdom before him the whole time in order to do so. So there's an intentionality here that Solomon was able to conduct this test in. The prodigal son had to come to his senses, right? Solomon kept his senses intact the whole time. One commentator said the prodigal son was consumed or consumed what is under the sun. Solomon contended with it. But here's the thing. This also, testing pleasure, was vanity in verse 1. He tells us the result of this right up front. It didn't yield. Pleasure was found to be meaningless. And there are basically nine things, by the way, Solomon will test under the banner of pleasure. Two things to say about that, first of all. Number one, here is where it's especially important when you're reading Ecclesiastes to remember who Solomon was. He was the king. He had the ability to run this experiment as well as it could be run. He had the means to do it. He spared himself nothing. He will tell you that in verse 10. But secondly, so first of all, he's the king. So if he's going to, if anybody can test pleasure well enough, it's him with all of his resources. Secondly, that's all there really are in this world. Nine things. Nine categories. There's a lot under those categories. And yes, the objects of these categories change over the centuries. The means change, but the categories don't change. There are basically nine amusements in the human being's closet to access. And you might say, well, not at least there are options, right? At least there are nine things. Well, yes, but imagine that you're stranded on an island, you've had a shipwreck, and um, three board games survive the wreck. Every night you have options, right? You have three different board games you can choose from. Every single one of them will get very, 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 very old, right? So having options doesn't mean, oh, okay, there's the answer. The options are limited. There isn't enough here for gain. That's chapter 1, verse 3. That's the thesis statement, if you will. This is what he's after the whole time. The great question of Ecclesiastes, what does man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? That's the question. And he's saying nothing lets us gain meaning. The same old closet has offered the same nine games or so to every generation under the sun. These are fun games. They're good games, or they can be, but they're worn out, they're tattered, they've gotten old, and they're the only games in town. Laughter, alcohol, art, nature, money and possessions, music, sex, affirmation and fame, and work. Look at verse 2. I said of laughter. It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Laughter is good medicine, Proverbs seventeen twenty two. right? Laughter is a wonderful thing. Being able to laugh, having things to laugh at, it's a biblical thing. You believe that? It's a wonderful thing. It feels so good to laugh. 
And you can pursue meaning in laughter if you want to, right? There's, there's ways to pursue meaning in comedy, in lightness, uh, maybe being an escapist, never facing reality, never taking things seriously. That could be the way you deal with life, just trying to have fun, laugh at everything. But laughter also becomes wearisome, doesn't it? You, you, when, as you grow, when you're little, your capacity to laugh at things is pretty large. As you grow, you laugh at less things, probably, and you get more annoyed with laughter, right? It's, it's amazing, which I hope all parents are like this, but after a while of children laughing, it's like, okay, you have to shut up. You have to stop laughing. It's not, you gotta quit, right? <laughs> I hope I'm not the only person like that. That'll be really sad, but after a while, it, Proverbs 25:20. listen to this verse. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. Right? So somebody laughing when you're in pain would be like you're cold and they come up and take your coat off. Or like vinegar on soda, the author says, ruins it. Sometimes laughter is wildly inappropriate. Right? It, it, it can become a tool for folly. It can be a way to excuse wrongdoing or get around honesty. There's too much ache in the world for laughter to be the answer, for comedy, lightness. Now, in 3-4, the preacher will tell us that there's a time designated for laughter under the sun. So laughter is the design of God, a wonderful gift. But again, it cannot save us. Well, okay, what about alcohol? Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. The Bible tells us, to do that, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, I realize some of us may have a conviction against alcohol. That's fine, right? As long as we keep it that, a conviction, a personal conviction. But alcohol is not forbidden in Scripture. Drunkenness, however, is very clearly Wine is spoken of very highly in Scripture as God's gift to man to gladden his heart in Psalm 104.15. And it's not talking about Welch's grape juice. It's talking about wine. Um, we, we struggle with this. Have you ever noticed the way our convictions sometimes betray us in our sincerity? You, sometimes people get bent out of shape about the kind of bread that you use in communion as to whether or not it's it's close enough to what the real thing was. You ever notice nobody complains about the fact that we're drinking grape juice and not wine? Right? When, when they had wine at the Last Supper, that wasn't grape juice, beloved. That was wine. Solomon contends with drink while staying sober. He tells us that. He wants us to know that. I wasn't, I don't, I didn't, he's saying, I didn't mean I enjoyed wine by being blasted all the time. Right? That, that, that's not what he did. He contends with drink while staying sober and tests that gift to see if in using it, the lifestyle of it, he can find meaning in it. And even if he would have been drunk, the point would still be the same. It would just be harder to understand. But wine can give a merry heart in Ecclesiastes 9.7. It can gladden life in Ecclesiastes 10.19. But it's also a poor lover, a mocker and a brawler that leads us astray or can in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine. Proverbs 23 
29 and 30. You can try to escape the futility of the world in that lifestyle and checking out of reality or in staying in a haze all the time. But imagine if commercials, for example, about alcohol told the truth, if they showed like an AA meeting, right, or a wasted man over a toilet in the morning or a woman who was taken advantage of at a party while she was drunk or a drunken father beating his children or an alcoholic losing his job, that they, they aren't going to show you that. Alcohol is marketed very interestingly. And, and according to Scripture, wine is a gift. But if we count on the buzz to make us happy, we're going to stay thirsty. Solomon discovered that even taking wine in moderation and keeping our wits about us can delight us as God intended, but it will not give us the gain we long for. So wine is not the answer. Wine is not the gift to mankind, which is why we hear the prophet Isaiah, for example, call out to us to drink something better. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That's Ecclesiastes. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. There is a food and drink that come from God that do satisfy. His name is Jesus in John 7.37. So neither the drunk nor the abstainer, living in reference to alcohol, for or against, will give us true gain, will give us meaning. Only Jesus, only that which comes from above gives life. Look at where he goes in four. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So maybe meaning is finally found in what we make. Art, creativity, music, even nature. Solomon's grounds became his gallery. You could walk through and marvel at the things Solomon made, at his creations. Men will always be willing to show you things that they made, right? You know, even if it's just steak on a grill. I'm very proud of it. Woe to my family, to my wife and kids when they don't understand how well I can make a steak on the grill, right? We love to brag about what we made. Nature offered a palette to Solomon. He used it. He was an artist, an architect, a designer. He wanted things to look a certain way, and he did it. He made pools, gardens, parks, fruit trees. Even today, we, we still do this. We work with wood and glass and metal and paint and uh, film, paper, Creativity can give us a sense of meaning, but it won't last and it won't fill the void. Our think about our, our ability to, to, to invent planes and flight has not helped us avoid people flying them into buildings. Right. So even that great discovery, that great ability doesn't solve what's wrong in mankind. Eventually, foreign powers took over Solomon's great works, occupied them. Trash them. Most of them are gone now. Music can give us pleasure. Music can point us to meaning. Uh, it evokes memory, doesn't it? It stirs our imagination. It, it, it soothes us. It excites us. It can comfort people when they're dying. It can comfort people when they've lost someone. Solomon got great singers. He will say later in verse 8, surrounded himself with the world's best music in his day. But the best songs still end 
don't they? They're still over. You have to open your eyes again at some point. All right, well, what about uh, sex? Can meaning be found in the pleasure of sex? He talks about that in verse 8 of the things he got. He says, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. This is interesting. Solomon would win every locker room bragging session that has ever happened. I'm, I'm not, that's not a, a compliment, right? He, he literally lived the fantasy of many men and women. What do we make of God's king having been an adulterous polygamist? What do we make of that? 700 wives, 700 mothers-in-law, 300 concubines. You have 700 wives and you, you need 300 concubines. That's a thousand women. Think, think of the children. Just think of, of being one of those women of, of a thousand. Like Solomon, what are you doing? Right? I, I, and I don't know what we make of that. I really don't. But the point. Even the most accessible and constant sexual pleasure did not satisfy. Not, not even the gain that, or not even that pleasure gained Solomon any lasting meaning. But beloved, here, here's the difficult thing. Say what you want about what Solomon was doing. Even the beautiful covenant goodness of sex in marriage wasn't given to us to provide us with the ultimate gain, right? No matter how wonderful or beautiful the night with your spouse, even if you fall asleep in each other's arms, the alarm clock's going to go off the next morning. The babies are going to cry. The bills are still going to have to get paid. Something more is necessary under the sun if we're going to truly gain it. There's no pleasure that delivers us from the world, is what Solomon found as he tested. What about money and possessions or what about fame? What about our work? Look at 7 through 9. I, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Americans are among the wealthiest and most fortunate people in the world. No question. Um, so if that's the case, why do Solomon's words ring so true? Why are Americans so unhappy? That was the title of a, a Huffington Post article by Mark Golson in 2011. Why are Americans so unhappy? Research that out. We are far less content and yet rarely as happy as people in the world who have far less than we do. If we go back to Eden, though, beloved, hear this. If we go back to Eden, what do we discover is in our DNA? The belief that we needed one more tree, just one more tree than the ones we had. And we were incomplete unless we got it. That's why to this day we need just one more thing. Just a little more, then we'll finally be complete. So many of us build our whole lives on that pursuit, getting more tomorrow 
than we have today. So did Solomon, and he did it in wisdom. Genuinely trying to see if it would work, if that mountaintop could ever be reached, if there was ever enough. In other words, Solomon got what most of us are looking for, and it didn't yield. We don't have to keep doing this test. The king did this test. Solomon got what our hearts want. Solomon had power over other people. You, you can live for that. Right? And he had it. He had, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about having slaves in verse 7. People were at his beck and call. He was the boss. Solomon was the man. But, but to see our work with our eyes is the reward. I made that. I did that. That's the game. You have your reward, Jesus would say. Then you retire and you, you, you get a pen or you get a jacket or something, right? Maybe a, a seamstress or a tailor gets to see somebody wear something they made. Well, that's, that's it. And that, that's probably a wonderful feeling, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't last. It doesn't gain us what we're looking for when we worked to produce it. Or maybe you become popular and have fame in verse 9, surpassing all who were before me in Jerusalem. Solomon surpassed his dad. Surpassed David. But the fame is its own reward. Right? The fame is its own reward. There's nothing after it. I remember uh, when I was a little boy in 1979, I was four years old. I remember this because my dad worked and worked and worked and worked and trained. My dad won the North American Black Belt Championship in Taekwondo in 1979. He won the whole thing. He told this story later as he preached, but I remember as a little boy... My mom called him the morning after he won the tournament in his hotel, and she, she greeted him by saying, Hey, champ. And he said, Don't call me that. The, not, the next morning, and it's gone. Right? I, I, don't, I don't want to be thought of as the champ anymore. It just doesn't feel as good as it felt last night. Look at, look at 10 and 11. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The reward you get for all your toil is the how you felt in the moment. Right? That, that doesn't last. It won't give meaning. The toil we expend to build lets us see what we made. And that's all it does. Solomon had it all. He concluded that money, power, fame, and possessions couldn't satisfy him. Being the the greatest king couldn't satisfy him. Those things couldn't free him from life under the sun and his meaninglessness. He got more. He felt more pleasure and kept wanting. So the first 11 verses are Solomon's description of the things that, if humans have access to, will use them to find gain. That's the first 11 verses. The rest of the chapter is why there is no gain in them, which brings him back to the themes of chapter 1. We pick it up in verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. So that's very interesting, right? Solomon even tried ignorance is bliss. I think we've talked about that before. He even tried that. He even tried madness, right, and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. You, you can't top the king. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. More gain, yes. 
The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart this that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come all who have been long forgotten. All will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Even if we are wise and don't use the things of the world to try to find gain or salvation, even that wisdom about things won't bring us the gain that we need. You see what he's saying? In verse 12, why is there no gain from this? As he will go on to say, nothing he does changes the future for him. Nothing... um, Nothing he does changes the people who come after him. He has learned wisdom from all of this, but to whom will all of it pass? Will that person be wise? Will that person preserve it? He can't know, even if he wanted to. What can you know when you're gone? That begs the question in verse 13, why is wisdom better than folly? Why is it better than folly? What's the difference? First of all, because the wise man at least has his eyes open while the fool is going through life blindly, Yet the same thing happens to all of them in verse 14. In other words, there's no real gain in it. Having things even with wisdom doesn't prevent the wise man from getting cancer, for example, or experiencing disaster. The same event happens to all of them. The wise and the fool are both trapped, but wisdom is better than folly, right? That's his argument here. But again, why be wise if that's the case? Verse 15 and 16, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. Remember, Solomon's not having a bad day. Solomon isn't just down in the dumps. This is after a long, extensive test of pleasure, of things that make you feel good, of of then testing the value of wisdom itself and the value of madness or folly. Wisdom didn't accomplish anything that would last, is, is what he's saying. Even if we have these things, or even if we have wisdom, we can't actually control our future. He's still going to die. Right? If you're going to die, there's no gain. He's, he's coming to see this. Verse 17, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So what is the gain in wisdom? Why is, it, why is there more gain in that than folly? Because if I'm trying to use the things of this world to escape death or to escape hardship, to make a name for myself or to be remembered or to somehow control my destiny and my future, I'm a fool. I'm a fool. All these things he talks about here are good gifts. They're just poor saviors. And, and look, he's not excusing polygamy, right? He's not, uh, certainly not excusing drunkenness. That's not his point. 
point is, it doesn't really matter. I, 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 it, it's very hard to understand. I mean, Solomon was acting in wisdom. Did the Lord let him do this to some degree to, to take it out to its fullest extent to teach us? I, I, I don't know. I don't think we can say. But the, the, the point is, he experienced it literally. And even the, the, the best of it, right? The realizing the dream of all those pleasures didn't, didn't do anything. And they're all good gifts. All good gifts from God. They're just poor saviors. No, no matter how much water they give, we still long for living water. We, we remain thirsty. Remember what Jesus said about what he gives. You will not be thirsty again. We lost Eden. We lost it. And Solomon will talk about how eternity has been written on our hearts. Later in this book, in other words, we know we were made for more. We're going to last. We can't escape that. What if we were to go through eternity having never been satisfied, never gained, never had meaning? That haunts every human being. Wisdom is the knowledge of the truth which would be what makes it valuable under the sun, beloved. We have good things, but they will not bring us back to paradise. What God created, again, is still here, right? But they're all shells of their former selves. Everything now, as he talked about in chapter 1, groans. It's, it's weary. It's longing to be redeemed. So when we talk about salvation, there's that element in it of recovering paradise, even as Christians, we're fools if we try to squeeze life and meaning out of the good gifts that God has given to us. Enjoy them, beloved. Yes, enjoy the good gifts of God as much as you can. That's very Christian. Just don't be fooled by them. Right? Don't, don't be fooled by anything or anyone. Don't use anything to provide what only Jesus can. That is vanity. It's a striving after win. We say things like this. I, I, I've read it. I've seen. I've seen it on church signs. God, family, country. Right. That's the order. God, family, country. Only one of those gives life. Only one of those is wise. It's not that the others can't be or shouldn't be enjoyed. They absolutely should be. It's that when we put them together, we're admitting that we're dependent on all three. And that's folly. According to the scripture, beloved, folly. Verses 18 through 23. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. I remember, I remember talking with, we were, we had, uh, lunch one day with Dave and Christy Hoskins right before the pandemic stuff hit and we were talking about things and I asked Dave, what's it like to give your daughter away at a, at a wedding as the father? I, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to that. Now I, I want my, Girls, to, uh, to, please don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm, if they find a good guy, I'll be thrilled for them. I just don't know if any more exists. But anyway, I know they're out there. But what does that feel like? You know, to say, okay, here, 
you, I'm, I'm giving her to you, right? Not any patriarchal nonsense, just here. Like I, I have to give, I've, I've labored to take care of this, this woman and now I give her to you. What does that feel like? And Solomon's feeling it about everything. And when you talk about his toil, what he had made, what he had done, it just adds the, the weight to it. So he says in verse 20, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Hear that? That's evil, he says. That stinks. What has a man from all the toil and striving of the heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So he's described these wonderful things, Edenic things, many of them, that are poor shells of themselves, won't satisfy us. He's told us why they won't satisfy us in verses 12 through 17. Now in verse 18, 17 and 18, he comes back to this idea of wise hating. And again, we might think that's nihilistic. But remember, there's a context to his hate. It's grounded in wisdom, beloved. He's proven a case by the time he says that. Right? So it's not just this, I hate myself, I hate my life. No, no, no. He's, he's, there's a reason for it. Wisdom has brought him to that. The wise thing to do in light of the truth of Ecclesiastes 2 is to hate our lives under the sun. And before you think, well, that's just so awful. Jesus Christ talked like this. In Luke 14, 26, specifically, he said that very thing. And interestingly, he talks like you can't even be his disciple if you don't hate your own life. This is Christ-like thinking about life in this world. Hatred doesn't mean non-enjoyment. Of your life, it just means putting no stock in anything here. In nothing. Not trying to find gain in any of it. So, part of the, the, the teaching here is enjoy much. Just cling loosely. Beloved, it's so much easier to enjoy when you're not depending on something to give you gain or meaning. When you go on vacation, if you weren't looking to vacation to soothe the hurt in your soul, you'd probably have a lot more fun. Right? If you weren't like me, always thinking like, it's got to end. And I don't want it to end, uh, like, not want it to end because I hate coming back here to my job. I just, I hope you understand that. Being with your family and there's, you can just enjoy the time is just such a wonderful thing. You don't want it to end, right? But but you know it's 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 going to end. He's described everything that's good in this world and then gives us reasons why there's no gain in those things. So he hates the fact that in spite of that, he still has to toil to experience any of those things. That's a godly resignation to the way things are under the sun. That's a godly resignation. And beloved, if the Lord brings us to a place where we start to ask honest questions, what do you think... Is happening to us there. Where we genuinely ask things like, well then, why be good? Why be wise? 
It's, it's, it's actually biblical to, to reach these places. God is at work in us. Why be wise when there's no good in it or no gain in it, right? What? And, and look, when you come to those places, for a time you may want to quit. You may want to walk away from all this. Exasperation will set in. I would say, beloved, hold on. Hold on. Because I think the scripture says that's the place where we truly begin to have wisdom as the Bible teaches it. When we're beginning to ask the questions that embrace the world as God has cursed it, subjected it to futility, left us in it, and not fixed it. I think when our questions begin to come from that realization, we've begun to have wisdom. Isn't it interesting that the book of James, James will say that wisdom is what we should be asking for from God and would have in abundant supply if we ask for it, but instead we go to God for what? To spend it on our own passions. That's Ecclesiastes. We believe the gifts can fulfill us, so we pray for more of them. When, when the Bible is telling us over and over again, no, 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 come to me for wisdom. I will let you see. Come to me. Don't live with a blindfold on. Don't be fooled. Stop expecting gain to come from anything in this world, even from the good things. That, that's why it's so important not to make morality the main teaching of our faith. Right? It's not that we, we're immoral or don't care about it. It's not that. That's not the point. The point is that you, gain will not come from living that way. Satisfaction will not come from living that way. And we're not wise until we agree with this. We don't like to do anything unless there's something in it for us. Right? It's just how we are. That's why humans are asking questions like, why be good if there's no gain in it? What an amazingly betraying question about why we want to be moral. Why spin your wheels? Zach Eswine, one of my favorite authors, preachers, talked about how in a season of Horrible slander against him in his life as a pastor. He tried imperfectly, he said, to love his enemies in that, to bless those who were persecuting him. And he said it did him absolutely no good. No matter how hard he tried to be kind, it never achieved anything. And it begged the question, then why do it? Why not just respond in kind? If responding in kindness is not going to fix anything, it's not going to make them stop. It's not going to make them leave me alone. It's not going to make this end. Why do what isn't acknowledged, accepted, or seen? What's the point if it doesn't work? God is at work, beloved, in those questions. You might say, well, well, God sees it. Well, yeah, but that doesn't help, right? If That doesn't help down here, and I'm not saved by my works anyway, so what's the point? That's what Ecclesiastes is doing. It's making us wrestle. God is bringing us to wisdom to show us the folly of looking for anything here to satisfy us. He's showing us how self-centered and pragmatic we are in the questions that we ask. Why love others? Because God does. Because you love God and God loves you. End of story. Right? 
But unless there's something in it for us under the sun, we're not interested. Right? It's, it's vain. It's meaningless. So, in all the questions like that, God is bringing us deeper into our need for His grace. That's what He's doing. That's the point. God is graciously showing us how much we need Him so that we stop having the wrong ideas about our salvation. We follow Him often so that things will go well for us. But if you take away the well things, will you still follow Him for His own sake? That... The way you let that question get inside of you and begin to work, that's wisdom teaching us. When we answer those questions honestly, we become more aware of something, more aware of our desperate need for God's grace to get into the marrow of our bones if we're going to be made whole. Again, we're normally focusing on forgiveness and and sin when it comes to the things we can see. Right, the, 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 the things that we actually do. That's where we normally think of sin. We're just so broken, so crooked deep down, the song says. Some things under the sun are just better than others. Right? So in terms of seeing, it's better to be wise than it is to be foolish. It's good to be wise, but Solomon won't leave us there as though that's the goal or that's where the gain we need will come from. He says it it won't gain anything under the sun, though. It won't make the world new. We don't pursue wisdom so that we can finally have gain under the sun. Beloved, we pursue wisdom because wisdom is wise. Right? It is what it is. It's part of the goodness of God for our world. If, If Think about, you know, if in a football game, one team was playing dirty, cheating, you know, doing stuff in the pile, all that sort of thing, what happens if the other team responds in kind? What if the other team says, you know what, they're going to play dirty, we're going to play dirty. What do you have? You have chaos, right? Gets out of control. But what if one team chooses to respond kindly, with integrity, with sportsmanship? Well, then at least somewhere on the field there's a pathway to light, Somewhere on the field, there's still wisdom present. Responding in kind to the world just invites folly. It just creates chaos. And there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, more gain in light than in darkness. Not gained, end of story, but more gain in that than that. It's just very practical wisdom here. It doesn't save us, but it's better. So there's hope, beloved. Even though the world has fallen and futile, all is not lost. God hasn't quit. But that doesn't change the emptiness of the world, Solomon is saying. Verse 23, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The fact that my heart can't rest, that's also vanity. Why can't it rest? Well, if he hates his life, here's the thing as you come into the end of this passage. If it's so bad, right, which I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's just being honest. But if he hates his life, why is this conclusion not suicide? Isn't that what you're supposed to do when you hate life and everything is meaningless? Just remove yourself from the earth. And, or why doesn't he say here, why isn't his conclusion so turn your eyes on Jesus 
Look to the Father. The things of earth will go strangely. Beautiful song, by the way. I'm not insulting the song, but that's, that's not where he goes here. The conclusion where he does go is in the last verses of chapter 2. Listen to this in light of what we've heard. There is nothing better for a person in verse 24 than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. That'd be awesome if there was a period right there, or if the chapter ended right there. But then he says, this also is vanity and a striving after win. Now, ask yourself, in light of what he said up to this point in verse 24, how is verse 24 the conclusion? That there's nothing better to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil. Solomon, you just told me that I won't gain anything by that, and it's vanity. Verse 26 is heavy. Even the fact that God gives good gifts to the one who pleases him, often through the hands of somebody who rejects him, that also is vanity and a striving after wind. Beloved, wrestling with this is how we learn to think biblically about the things of the world. He doesn't say these things he's talked about are bad. Nor does he say that since we can't find gain or meaning in them, we should reject them and not have them. Avoiding something God has called good doesn't make you more spiritual. Don't don't ever forget that. All things are good if they're received with thanksgiving. He calls these things the delights of man. In fact, in verse 25, we find that God empowers us specifically to enjoy them. The problem is how we use them, not whether or not we have them. The problem is trying to find gain in anything under the sun, to find meaning even in the good thing. And that's normally where the Christian goes astray. Taking something good and trying to find gain or meaning in it along with God. That's folly. It's even if we're not careful, the creation of graven images, beloved. The whole world is folly. Even having the good things with God, we're still under the sun. And verse 26 is helping us see that in the gift of the good things that we are given from God, that's not how he's satisfying us. He's keeping us longing while enjoying, which is both his kindness and his wisdom. If these verses are true, we can't long properly for God until we're properly enjoying the good gifts of His creation. So the goal is not to shun them, but to use them with wisdom. Let the gifts be what they are, just don't try to squeeze meaning out of them. Beloved, meaning is not going to come from your relationships. It's not going to come from your family. It's not going to come from your work. It's not going to come from your accomplishments. It's not going to come from your wisdom, from your morality, from your money, from your creativity. It will not come from those things. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. We corrupt what God has called good. But that's the problem. So the answer is not throwing them all away. That's not wisdom. 
The wisdom is embracing their inability to satisfy me as they cause me to look to a God so kind and benevolent that he hasn't left me in my sin but is willing to teach me and draw me to himself. Beloved, life can be more simple than we make it. It really can be. We're given things to enjoy by God, just not as fulfillment, but as a reminder, a foretaste even, of paradise. There's an ache in the beauty of living under the sun. Death does that to us. We have done that to us. And God has let it be. God encourages us to find enjoyment in the present. You see what he's doing? Stop looking beyond the moment. Stop looking beyond what you have. Right? Just, just stop. Enjoy what's in front of you. Don't try to suck life and meaning out of it. But by all means, enjoy it. It's so practical. It's so kind. It's so gentle. Solomon, this is what Solomon found out when he tested it. So he, 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 He's left longing. God encourages us to find enjoyment in the present, in His daily gifts of food and drink and toil, but in so doing, is beckoning us to find meaning somewhere else. Not in anything we can gain from these things. Solomon was coming to realize that God will have to take care of death and all that's resulted from it. But in time, Solomon, the promised one is going to come. A cross will stand, a tomb will empty, and death will die. Now, life under the sun won't be new because of that, but we will be. And in this, beloved is our hope, the perfect Savior, the perfect Savior. I believe Solomon, by God's design, even though he didn't fully comprehend everything, obviously is is pushing us to Jesus by making us hurt and making us think and making us see things the way they are. And in that, the glory of Jesus becomes all the more clear and beautiful.